is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Now, for more than a year, thousands of residents in the Chicago area have been receiving a monthly cash stipend. $500, no strings attached. Cash assistance programs can be publicly or privately funded, have been gaining steam around the country. Not as a cure-all for poverty, but as a way to meet immediate needs. Now, the Guaranteed Income Program run by Cook County is the largest publicly funded program in the country. Researchers at the University of Chicago and several others in the region have been studying that program, but there are some results that data alone can't reveal. So one Chicago sociologist spoke with people who are receiving the monthly cash assistance to find out more about the difference that it's making in their lives. And she documented it in her limited podcast series called Guaranteed with Eve L. Ewing. And scholar and writer Eve Ewing joins us now in the studio. So good to see you again, Eve. Oh, it's better to see you. Good morning. Welcome back. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with a couple of definitions, if you will, sure. right? Because we're going to be using some very specific terms here. Uh, we're talking about direct cash assistance, guaranteed income. So let's make sure we're on the same page. Yeah. Uh, when we say cash assistance or we say guaranteed income, what are we talking about exactly? And how is that different from the universal basic income or UBI that I know a lot of people are used to hearing? Yeah, great question. So universal basic income, um, you know, got a lot of traction in the last presidential election. It's a term that some people are more familiar with. But the key difference here is this idea of universal, right? And so that's an intervention that goes to everybody and it guarantees everybody making a, a minimum amount of money regardless. And one critique of those types of programs is we might say, well, is it fair for us to direct our resources to people who might have other sources or in, of income or wealth? And so the guaranteed um, direct cash assistance programs that have been operating here in Chicago and around the county are targeted programs. Um, they're programs that spick, that pick particular groups of people that could use cash assistance, and it provides them this guaranteed amount of money that they know that they can count on every single month. In the case of these programs, it's mostly $500, um, and that is something that comes with no strings attached, mm -hmm. direct cash assistance. So they can spend it on rent, they can spend it on housing, they can spend it on Christmas gifts for their kids if they want, and there's nobody kind of following that up. People have the freedom to choose how they want to And this spend is very money. much unlike other programs that we're familiar with, right? Like the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program or SNAP right. that we know has to be spent on food and, and also with within that, like very specific food, right? Not right. prepared foods. <laughs> like it, it's very specific. Exactly. A lot of the ways in which we provide assistance to folks who are in need in the United States are, as you said, tied to very specific requirements. And so we say, this is a housing voucher, you can use it for housing. This is food assistance, you can use it for food. And um, a lot of folks have pointed out, as, as you're saying yourself, that there are a lot of restrictions here that, that I think people who aren't relying on these programs might not always be familiar with. So for example, if you're used to, you know, running late on dinner, you go into the grocery store, you see that rotisserie chicken, you know, you can grab that, it's, you know, maybe going to feed the family that night. If you're thrifty, you might save the carcass and make some chicken stock or mm -hmm. serve it the next day. Those kinds of things that are pre-prepared food are not included under under uh, supplemental nutrition assistance programs. And so I think a lot of people that are not relying on these programs are not aware of some of the hoops and limitations that folks have to jump through. Mm -hmm. But that being said, you know, these guaranteed income programs are by no means intended as a replacement for those programs, but rather um, a leg up for people who can use it and um, something that provides them a little bit more flexibility. Yeah, the the Guaranteed Income Program in Cook County is not universal. Who is it designed for specifically? I know it, it had specific requirements for who could participate. 
Yeah, so both Chicago and Cook County um, decided to focus on folks that are low income, which in these instances is defined as being 250% of the federal poverty line. And so we know that the federal poverty line, you know, it's it's federal, so that means it's setting the same bar for how you're supposed to spend your money in Chicago versus maybe a rural place in another state that might have a lower cost of living. And so, um, so that, and they had to be 18 and over. Uh, they had to be residents of the city or of the county. There are also other kind of smaller, what we might consider sort of boutique uh, guaranteed income pilots that have been operating around the city and around the region. Um, for example, in Evanston, there's a guaranteed income pilot that focuses on folks that are that are immigrants, mm-hmm. um, folks that are elders. Um, in uh, Chicago on the west side, um, uh, EAT, which is uh, uh, an organization that's partnered with the Economic Security Project, they've been administering a guaranteed, uh, the Chicago Future Fund, which is focused on folks that have been affected by the criminal legal system. So people that are formerly incarcerated, mm-hmm. people people that have been on house arrest, things like that. And so part of what we wanted to document with this podcast is we're living in kind of an amazing moment of all of these different approaches and experiments of people who are taking these different angles to say, how can we provide people with the things that they need to live a great life in their, in our city and in our county? Yeah. And uh, to that end, we're actually going to get to some of the stories of the folks that you interviewed uh, throughout this conversation. But when you think about those conversations, Eve, what does this flexibility of having choice make possible for people like what happens to people when we meet their basic needs right you know um i sound like a silly question but yeah no it's it's an important question and i think that one of the problems in my personal opinion underlying uh, the United States is that we tend to assign a moral value to poverty and wealth. And so a lot of us have these kind of internalized, unquestioned assumptions that being poor is a moral failing. And what that means is that in a lot of the ways we treat low income folks, and we all understand there are many, many ways that all of us are living precarious lives and can slip beneath the surface and between the cracks right now, right. between COVID, between healthcare costs and needs in our country, right? We really fail to provide the basics. That so many of us need. are just a paycheck away. Absolutely. And, and, you know, statistics consistently show that. And so I think that one of the basic things is that choice provides the opportunity to have some dignity. And all of the the folks that we spoke with for the podcast, um, you know, I got emotional at different points um, talking to people. And some of the things were, you know, as I mentioned, the example of being able to buy gifts for your kids. And that's the kind of thing that there are certain policymakers that might really wag your fingers at that. They might say, you know, being able to go out and, and buy new clothes or Christmas presents or things that your kids are asking for for the holidays, that's not a long-term investment, right? You mm-hmm. could be spending that in some other type of way. But for a parent, for anybody who has a relationship with a child, we understand that, you know, that little moment of being able to give your kids something special that they wanted, that they needed, that pays dividends. That, that pays relational dividends, right? Mm-hmm. That pays dividends of of trust and, and somebody feeling special for a little while. Yeah. And those are the kinds of things that I think it's really hard to put a dollar amount on. You mentioned the long-term. I, I wonder how important you think the stories of these individuals individuals are for the longevity of this program and programs like it. Yeah, you know, not to pat myself and our, our amazing uh, research team and production team at Ergo Media too much, but um, I really hope that it makes a difference. You know, um, in Cook County, um, President Preckwinkle has committed that she wants this to be a permanent program. Um, in Chicago, um, the program was initially a pilot and, you know, hoping that, that the mayor and other folks will talk about extending it and what that could look like. Obviously, we're living under all types of budget crises, and so, you know, don't take those recommendations lightly. 
uh, lightly, but in terms of paying dividends, we can think about all the ways in which I do think that this has um, long-term effects. And some of the research shows that this has long-term effects that can save us money in other arenas. So I hope that the approach we took on the podcast, which is really much more of a storytelling approach that centers people, I hope that that can play a small role in helping folks understand how important these programs are. Yeah, there was initial concern that uh, enrolling in a guaranteed income program might interfere with other forms of government assistance or that the city and county's uh, programs, that they would be difficult to manage logistically just sheerly because of the size, right? right? Did the folks you talked to discuss downsides like that? They did not. And one of the benefits of Chicago's programs is that we're not the first, but we are the largest. And so um, and so there's been ample opportunities to learn from places across the United States where these initiatives have have um, taken place. In our first episode of the podcast, we talked to Mayor Michael Tubbs, um, who is formerly the mayor of Stockton, California, which is, you know, a little town um, smaller than Chicago. But but they've become the example. They've become the example. And one of the things he said to us was exactly to your point. He said we had to work really, really hard to make sure that we're not making people ineligible for other things that they're counting on, right? And so we don't want people getting evicted from their public housing because they no longer qualify, or we don't want them receiving other forms of assistance because this little bit of income bumps them up above the threshold. And the other thing he said that I think was really powerful is he said, you know, the money has to come on time, right? And and speaking of, we talked about trust a minute ago in terms of the trust between a parent and a child. A lot of us have, with very good reason, learned to not trust governmental programs. And so when people hear, hey, you're going to get free money, no strings attached, it's going to come in the mail, it needs to come when it's supposed to come. If you sign up for direct deposit, you need to be able to log into your account and know that that check has hit at the time when it was supposed to hit, right? Mm-hmm. And so those are some of the things that, um, that policy leaders um, have worked really closely with communities to work out in advance. So luckily, you know, knock on wood, we didn't hear any of those types of um, those negative stories of, okay, you know, now I wasn't eligible for this thing or that thing. Yeah. Well, I was struck by your conversation with Stephanie. Uh, Stephanie's a mom and dance instructor. She used the money to pay for therapy for her and her daughter. Let's listen. I suffered from anxiety and depression right after her. Like I had postpartum depression. Nobody talked about it. Of course, they ask you questions. But if you go into the doctor, you're like, what? I want to kill myself? No, because then you're going to take my kid away. But really, these feelings are real. And I just didn't know how to be safe or feel safe about talking about it. What else stuck out to you about Stephanie and how the Guaranteed Income Program helped her family? You know, there are so many of the I just got emotional hearing that again, as though I hadn't already heard it before. Um, I think that what stuck out with with Stephanie's story was um, she's a dance instructor. And so she she brings joy through dance. And I think that some of it was the she talked a lot about the trauma that she inherited from her family, um, you know, witnessing abuse between her parents, witnessing abuse in her family. And, you know, that phrase of uh, breaking generational cycles of trauma has almost become a cliche at this point. But for many families, it is a real thing. And for her to be able to speak candidly and say, this is not, I've inherited some things that I don't love that I'm not trying to pass on to my children. And I want to pass on joy. I want to pass on the love for my art. I want to pass on having healthy avenues to cope for the challenges that are going to arise in life. I don't want to pass on the hurt and I don't want to pass on the bad things. And so um, that's an example of, again, something that in terms of, you know, policy interventions is not a ton of money. Um, can really make a difference not only in her life but in her kids' lives. I love that therapy is the example here, though, because that's not something that people immediately think of as, you know, when you think of your list of expenses, when you're budgeting for the month, right? So to think that someone who's relying on an extra 500 bucks a month and that's what they take it for and use it for, 
how many of us take that for granted? Right, right. That have health benefits and such that will cover things like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that there are so many, so many things like that. And that's, I think, why, you know, again, none of us who are advocating for these types of programs want to suggest that they should replace the other really important social safety nets that we have in place. Absolutely. But I think that when we have this element of choice and people get to decide, it turns out that they are experts on their own lives. And, you know, I think it would have been impossible of all the thousands of families that have participated in these programs for any of us to anticipate every single little niche thing that people would spend money on. And so the novel idea of allowing them to do what middle class and affluent people do, which is wake up every day and decide how they want to spend their money, turns out to have made a pretty big difference. Let's talk about Sharif for a bit now. Sharif is a gentleman you talked with who's uh, formerly incarcerated. Uh, he's receiving the guaranteed income as part of a re-entry program. So what difference has have these direct cash payments made for Sharif? You know, every episode is my favorite episode in a different way. But um, Sharif is definitely a really special person. And a yeah, lot this of people, was a good conversation. Yeah, a lot of people reached out and said that it really moved them. Um, Sharif is also a dad. Um, and he he was formerly incarcerated, as you mentioned. And he talked about um, really when so he was on house arrest for a while when he came back home. And it was frustrating for him to not be able to earn income. Um, he loved his kids. Being on house arrest meant that he got to be around his kids all the time, and which I think, you know, was really special for him. But he said, I just want to be able to bring something into the house. And so participating in, in this program allowed him a legitimate way to earn some income. And he was one of the people, you know, um, one of the big stereotypes about, I think, guaranteed income and just like low income people getting money in general is folks jump to the Jordans right away. Well, what if people spend it on Jordans? Yes. <laughs> what if people spend it on Air Force I've One? I've heard that. Right. And um, there's a lot that under lies that comment. I mean, number one is the assumption that wealthy people don't waste money on things, right? And um, so that wealthy people don't wear Jordans. Right. The wealthy people don't wear Jordans. Um, and that also that like if you're poor, you don't deserve joy or having a special thing. But, you know, that was uh, Sharif and I talked about that directly. He's like, yeah, I bought my kids new shoes. I absolutely bought my kids new shoes. And if you've never like been in a situation where you didn't have some basic confidence, yeah. you didn't have some basic pride, then I really don't want to hear anything you have to say about it. Let's hear from Sharif himself about some of the biggest costs he faces as a parent. Clothes is definitely one of them. As my kids was growing, I ain't going to lie to you. I was brought up wearing pro wings, you know what I'm saying? And I felt out of ordinary or whatever you want to consider. And just seeing my kids happy with some actual outfits on and with some shoes that I know I couldn't really get when I was younger, trying to make sure my kids be situated. Even if it was just momentarily, I'm still cool with it. So to your point earlier, Sharif's story is telling us about agency right. and choice. right. So with any type of government assistance, some people want to know if it's going to, you know, discourage folks from working. There's that. There's the other question, right? It's right. It's the, are you going to use the money to buy Jordans? And like, are you going to actually get a job? Right. right? That, that's the other question that you hear sometimes. So did you find any merit to the fear that a portion of income from, uh, you know, guaranteed income would actually lead people to be like, well, now I don't have to work? Yeah. So, again, one of the benefits, in, in addition to the fact that we were able to learn so much from what other cities have done, there's also been a really robust body of research on this, which, again, we do talk a little bit about in our first episode in which some of my colleagues at the University of Chicago are continuing to gather. So anecdotally with these five folks, no, we didn't hear that. But in addition to that, I'm able to say more broadly that that's just not something that the evidentiary base supports. And the other thing that's interesting is that in some studies um, and in some instances, people are more likely to go back to work because, 
what is one of the biggest costs that we know in Illinois and across the country? Child care. Yes. Right. And so there are certain people that are looking at the dollars and cents and saying, I would actually like to work. I'd actually like to continue my professional life, continue my career, especially women. Right. But they're saying, well, the way child care costs are set up is actually more economically affordable for me to stay home um, than it is for me to go back to work. And so there are some people that do take this income and they actually use it to return to the workforce. Another thing to keep in mind is that there are many types of work that we don't acknowledge, um, that we don't um, formalize in our economy. And so there are people that are caretakers for their children. There are people that are caretakers for their parents or for other elders in their family. And so, you know, that is also a form of work. Um, But one of the things that I'm excited that we explored in the podcast is like also examining the idea that uh, maybe it's okay if people want to find other sources of joy or meaning in their lives Mm -hmm. other than working themselves to death. And so, you know, if it is actually better for you to spend this money and this time on something else, maybe that's something we should think about as we all examine our own relationship to work, uh, which is often not always super healthy. Yeah. Well, Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle said more than 230,000 people applied for Cook County's Guaranteed Income Pilot Program back in 2022. I had her on the program and my head spun when she said that number. Uh, and less than 4,000 people were actually chosen mm-hmm. to get the $500 stipend. Obviously quite a demand out there yeah. for this. I mean, what do you think it would take to open this program up to more people? You know, I think that I hope that these kinds of telling these stories, but also, um, again, that robust research evidence that at this point has been around from multiple contexts for multiple years. And part of the the brilliance of, you know, these massive pilots here is that in a couple of years, we're going to have even more data that's specific to Chicago. And we're going to be able to say these were the outcomes on crime. These were the outcomes on education. These were the outcomes on employment and things like that. But I do think that some of this is, you know, um, psychological and about our our morality and our political ideology and what we think is important. And I I think that what one of the pieces of feedback we got about the podcast is that each episode, um, people would say things like, you know, you talk for an hour and then only after an hour did you talk about like the person being low income or the person dealing with the effects of poverty. And I think that that's because people have a certain expectation that when you're talking about poverty, when you're talking about economics and things like that, the people are solely defined by that aspect of their situation. Mm-hmm. And this is not the case. We just talk to really cool people in Chicago who, you know, are our neighbors and who have cool stories, cool histories and, mm-hmm. and other things that make them complicated and special human beings. And I think that that is some of the shift that needs to happen in order for us to have broader support for these types of programs to understand that this is not a stereotype. This is not a monolith of, you know, some type of person far away. This is your neighbor this is your family member and for many folks listening this is y'all right this is you as you said many of us are experiencing economic precarity or are just one paycheck or one emergency away from it and so i think that um the more we realize that these are universal experiences and uh really um profoundly uh, common experiences Mm -hmm. the more i hope people will open up their amenability to expanding these kinds of programs and to your point i mean some people believe that making guaranteed income universal like unemployment insurance, for instance, right? That that would help solidify wider support and buy-in. Um, what do you think makes people hesitant to support guaranteed income programs? 
You know, I'm not sure that people are hesitant. I think I think it depends. I think that um, this is one of those situations where there are a few people in positions of power who have disproportionate ability to make decisions for the rest of us. And so some of this comes from, you know, part of why I'm excited to have this conversation with you today yeah. is for this to be a thing that people can ask of your of your city council reps, that you can ask of your governor, that you can ask of your of your Congress people. Right. That, um, you know, short of some of the UBI conversation that we saw get into the presidential election. Election. This is something that I really hope that people will, to, the more that they learn about it, the more they realize that this is something that we can demand. And we have been really fortunate. I mean, it's a huge deal to have a Cook County president and to have a mayor who were at least willing to put money behind the pilot, right? And and um, Tony Preckwinkle, who we also interview on the podcast, talks about why she made this decision and talks about why she wants to make it universal. So I think that part of what she said she hopes is that this is also providing an exemplar for what other people around the country can do. Um, but we as citizens, we as as voters, we also need to be informed in order to make that demand. Yeah, let's hear from Preckwinkle herself. Usually when we talk about safety, unfortunately, the, the national narrative is around policing and around law enforcement rather than investment in our communities. And clearly we have to have more effective policing. And that isn't to say more police, but more effective policing. We have to invest in our communities. And those investments can be investments in, you know, affordable housing. They can be investments in our schools, but they can also be investments in our families. And so I'd say that, you know, whatever we can do to to stabilize folks who are struggling contributes to the vitality of the communities and the safety of all of us. This is where you asked her if, uh, if guaranteed income programs were making our city safer places to live, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. What do you think of, of, her response there. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that I agree. I think that we, it's really important when I, you know, for all of us in the last few years to have expanded conversations about what safety means. What are the things that make us feel safe? What are the things that make us feel unsafe? And I think just speaking for myself and for many folks that I know and that I'm in community with, that isn't just about, you know, knowing that if I call 911, the police are going to show up with guns blazing. I often find myself wishing that I uh, could call people about things without worrying that somebody's going to show up with guns blazing, right? I'm like, man, I'm just trying to sleep and my neighbors are really loud, but do I but is is my only option to either not sleep or to call someone who's going to show up with a firearm? Is there something in between that we can have here, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, I think for many people, our notions of safety have to include things like knowing that our schools are going to be there for our kids, that our teachers are going to be there for our kids, that we have mental health resources and access to mental health resources, that we can ride public transit and feel safe, right? And so some of those are things that require continued public investment, but some of those are things that are amplified by our interpersonal relationships with one another. I do believe that when a young person has access to, to mental health care or has a, a strong mentor in their life or knows that their school is a caring place, that they're less likely to go out and commit violent crime, right? I do believe that. Um, I do believe that when folks that are returning from being incarcerated have other opportunities to earn income, um, that they're not going to do things that, again, increase violent crime. I believe that as well. I remember a story one of my neighbors was telling me she was she was robbed as she was walking down the street. And... Um, Somebody took her purse. And as he was running away, he yelled back at her. He said, I don't want to be doing this. I'm really sorry. Right. And um, she was she was still, you know, mad and upset, although she was grateful to be safe. But, you know, I think that as we get to the holiday season and throughout the year, there are many people that are in these positions and that would rather be doing other things. Um, And so to me, I think on this point, I very much agree with President Preckwinkle that we have to expand our notion of not only what safety is, but how we can get there. 
Eve, one thing that we often hear Mayor Johnson talk about is uh, the idea of treating people with dignity Mm -hmm. in relation to the migrant crisis. uh, But we also hear him say that, you know, just really about any resident interacting with government agencies. Right. So as a sociologist, talk more about why you think agency and dignity are so important. Yeah. You know, I I really appreciate that framing. And I think that these are not things that are earned. These are things that all of us deserve. And this notion of deservingness is another big theme that we explore on the podcast that I think people have the idea that, you know, you only deserve this or you only deserve that if you are born into a certain economic stratum, born in a certain neighborhood. And what what does it look like for us to say, you know, all kids deserve great schools, all people deserve, you know, safe and standard housing, mm-hmm. all people deserve to wake up and feel safe in the morning. And, and I, you bring up on the podcast, you know, all people deserve to Uh, be trusted to make decisions for themselves. Yeah. And I I really do. I really do believe that. And I think that, you know, that is that's really where uh, agency and dignity meet. Right. Is is in this question of deservingness. And the thing is, is that there's just no material reason why these things should not be the case. Right. We live in a in a, you know, incredibly affluent society. And so it is by policy choice. it It is not by inherent scarcity that we live in a world where everybody doesn't have these things. And so how do we reconfigure not only the resources that we have available, but also our own thinking and our own assumptions and uh, in order to provide for everybody and to make sure that the whole city, the whole county, the whole country can thrive. And um, and that is, you know, as I said, I think, as you put it, agency and dignity are really at the core mm-hmm. of that. So we all know a person's well-being is directly impacted by their sense of safety and security. We talked a little bit about that before the break. And uh, we've been spending a lot of time talking about how extra cash can purchase things, right, to improve someone's life. I want to hear now from John, who's a resident of the West Side, talking about the physical health benefits that he experienced. Before I was was receiving this money, I couldn't hardly walk. I was having pains in my leg and pains in my side. Now, I have arthritis and I also have uh, herniated discs in my back. But uh, since I've been receiving this money and... uh, been paying my bills and everything. I noticed one day, and I can't remember exactly what day it was, that I'm walking normal again. I don't have to use the cane, and that the pain is in my shoulder. And I believe that was stress-related. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Mm-hmm. What did you think about John's story? Well, you know, it doesn't surprise me because I think, again, you know, we talked about SNAP earlier and folks who, um, if you've never had to rely on those types of programs, you don't know the complicated calculus. I think if you've never experienced uh, the stress of economic precarity and insecurity, it's hard for folks to imagine. But, you know, you get that phone call and your heart rate beats a little bit faster, right? You wake up in the middle of the night sweating. You wake up in the middle of the night unable to sleep. Your thoughts are racing. You wonder, how am I going to pay that next bill, right? Mm-hmm. You don't sleep well. You you don't operate well in just the day-to-day functioning of, of your body, your heart, and your mind. And so it didn't surprise me. It didn't surprise me. And, you know, um, this is, I always want to be careful about what I cite when I don't have the citations in front of me, but this is something that Mayor Tubbs also talked about um, in, in Stockton, that they saw quite a few mental health outcomes. And again, if we want to talk dollars and cents, I think here it's important to talk about 
stories, people, dignity, and what's right, what's moral. But Mm -hmm. if we want to talk dollars and cents, we can talk dollars and cents and about what kinds of interventions it takes and the massive amounts that we spend in our healthcare system, right? Um, And, you know, maybe there are some more effective ways that we could be spending that money. Yeah. Uh, Earlier this year, Shantae Robinson, who's a faculty researcher at the University of Chicago's Inclusive Economy Lab, came on Reset, and uh, she talked about the data she was collecting on this very topic. I want to play a little bit of what she had to say about how people are using cash assistance. People invest in themselves. They invest in their children and their families. They pay bills. They save, which uh, goes against the narrative of what people who are impoverished or in, in low-income situations do with this money. Mm. They, they want to save. They want to have a nest egg. They want to have stable housing. Saving is not easy to do. It's absolutely not easy to do, and they're prioritizing it and trying to figure out how can they do that mm. on their limited income. The personal stories that you heard for Guaranteed, did they fit with Shantae's findings? Absolutely. You know, Shantae's a good friend, and I and I agree with her here. I think that, um, you know, it's about savings, and it's also about investments that we make in our in our children. I think about uh, Raul, who's a, a participant in, in Evanston, who's one of the folks that we spoke to in, um, in one of our final episodes, and he talks about, you know, his son really, really wanting to play chess. And it turns out that that was something that he's really good at, right, and that brings him joy. Um, but also, to, to your point, savings. And one of the stories that touched me the most was um, talking to, to Stephanie. Um, Stephanie is a home health care worker um, in Chicago, and she lost her sister. Her sister was uh, younger than her. She'd um, dealt with chronic illness for a very long time, and she passed away. And Stephanie used the money to um, take care of the necessary arrangements after her sister passed and um, to have her cremated and also to have a little memorial celebration. Mm. And, you know, when I asked her, what would you have done if you hadn't had this money? Um, just asking her that question kind of made her her breath catch in her chest because, again, facing that reality of, oh, my God, not only am I grieving the loss of my sibling, right. but how am I going to pay for this? And all of us have contributed to those GoFundMe. It's a very harsh reality for a lot of us. It's very harsh. All yeah. of us have contributed to those GoFundMe's. All of us have, you know, talked about, all right, how are we going to bury this person? And those are real things. And yeah. so... Um, to have some savings, but also to have some some money to respond to an urgent crisis like that. Yeah, it means that going back to that theme of dignity, it's not just dignity for for um for. I'm sorry, I misspoke. It wasn't Stephanie. It was Topaz who shared the story. It wasn't just Tiffany. Uh, it wasn't just dignity for Topaz. It was also dignity for her sister after her passing, mm-hmm. and dignity for their family to be able to memorialize her in a way that felt good. So big picture, Eve. How do you want uh, people to be thinking about equity? impact and who deserves access to this type of assistance? Yeah, you know, I think um, the big picture here is that I hope people understand that it doesn't do us very well to sort folks around us into categories, right? Who's good, who's bad, who's deserving, who's not deserving, and that it benefits all of us in the long run if we are able to provide that basic quality of life for everybody Mm -hmm. because we live in an ecosystem, right? If my neighbors aren't eating well, if the kids in my neighborhood aren't feeling good and seen at school, right, if if folks can't get jobs, those things do come back to us in ways that have become, I think, really obvious in Chicago in the last few years. When your neighbor is suffering, it's going to come home to you. And so I want people to understand that. And then I think more broadly, something I'm really proud about in the way we told these stories is really centering the lives of the people who are most affected in ways that um, that I 
that I hope and feel that they felt good about, yeah. that, that I feel good about. And I think that, you know, for those of us that are kind of wonky policy nerds or, you know, that are into thinking about these type of social issues, that I hope people realize that this is a different way of, of telling stories that isn't just about, um, you know, statistics, numbers, and some of those deficits, Talking, asking people to talk about, you know, things that are only hard for them, that, that there's a lot of joy here, there's a lot of laughter here, and that people are very complicated, three-dimensional folks. Yeah. And that's why we all deserve that agency and that dignity. I absolutely loved when you asked this question to uh, Tony Preckwinkle. So I, I want to turn it back on you. Sure. Was there ever a time when cash assistance, so this type of no strings attached money, when it would have made a difference in your life? Oh, girl. Okay. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Tell us about it. I, you know, so many moments. So, so many moments. I mean, you know, one. I can think of a few. Yeah. One is, you know, um, I grew up uh, in Chicago where, um, you know, I could say we probably lived in five or six different apartments. Um, you know, the idea of renting, renting becoming unaffordable. I grew up in Logan Square before it was the Logan Square that it is now. And so, you know, living in a gentrifying community and being priced out. And, um, you know, I was raised by a single mom who is an amazing, amazing person, but I know that those things were stressful for her. Um, so that's one thing. And also, you know, there were times when we faced medical crises in our family, uh, layoffs, things like that, Mm -hmm. when just putting those kinds of basic food and necessities on the table would have been really helpful. And then, you know, again, as a student, um, you know, I, I often really struggled, um, to just meet my basic needs. I've been really happy to see now as a professor some of the ways in which there are a lot of programs in place to help students do basic things that were very hard for me to yeah. do, like buy books, but also buy food and have stable housing. Um, and so you then, just thought of several different touch oh, points yeah. I'll add one in more. your life. I was a public school teacher and my, you know, my first year as a Chicago public school teacher, like many folks, I was paying a lot out of pocket um, to try to pay my rent, but also get basic school supplies for my students. And so, you know, every, basically every chapter of, you know, of, of my early life, um, this would have been helpful. And I think also about families, right, and the ways that I've provided assistance for my family that maybe I would have saved that money if members of my family had other income coming in, right? Again, we live in an ecology. These are not individualized things. And so... Yeah, the list is long, the but list, that's a that's yeah. the, that's a start. But it's a real list, <laughs> and, and a lot of us can relate to that list, Eve. I mean, in, in the twenty seconds I have left, this podcast, then you think that might shift the dial, then by showing folks what cash assistance can do? Well, I hope so. And I also hope to really uplift, you know, amazing folks um, like Rich Wallace and, and you know, hearing the president of the county talk in her own voice mm-hmm. about these things. Um, people who are doing this work every single day. So I hope people will give it a listen before the year is over. And I'm really grateful for your time. That's Eve Ewing, scholar, writer and host of Guaranteed with Eve L. Ewing. It's a podcast exploring what happens when a portion of your income is guaranteed. Thank you for spending time with us. I appreciate you. Thank you so much.